Good morning and welcome to Let's Talk Wyoming. I'm Mark Hamilton, your host, and today we'll take a look at weather. And yes, we are in the spring here, officially in Wyoming, and we got 18 inches of snow. Sports, we'll look at the Wyoming Cowboys and Cowgirls. We'll look at the start of tourism in 1920 here in the state of Wyoming. And finally, we'll look at the legend of Crazy Woman Fork and the Indian War that goes with it. Thanks for listening today, and we hope you enjoyed the show. Taking a look at Wyoming weather here today on the 27th day of March. It was the first day of spring a week ago, and since then we've had snow over the weekend. We've had snow Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Sunday night, and it's snowing out presently here in Hot Springs County. I would say total where I live in the southern part of the county that uh, 18 inches of snow. I can tell by my dog, my German Shepherd is out in the backyard and some of that is settled, but it's up to his uh, body as he walks through there. And it doesn't seem to want to let up. One positive about this, it isn't too cold out there. We haven't had any type of wind, but uh, good moisture. Again, a lot of this is our Wyoming rain. We have it in the month of March. So we'll see what April looks like. I looked at the forecast and I see a couple days in the next 7 to 10 days where we have snow. I don't see the temperatures really getting very moderate. I see some 30s, high 30s, 40s. I didn't even see anything hit into the 50s, so we're right around the corner from Easter weekend. And so, again, in the state of Wyoming, and I think we're not alone. There's a lot of places in the country that I've seen where they've been getting the same type of weather, a lot of moisture out there. And we did talk about in a previous podcast, and we got that from Wild History, from the history of Wyoming from T.A. Larson, that um, in the past they had worked on some seeding of the clouds, even in the state of, of Wyoming, and I know there's been talk across the country and across the world of cloud seeding and such. And I did see on Twitter, I think it was, some pictures of some vapor trails and people were contending that they're seeding the clouds for this moisture right now. But they might want to take a look at maybe slowing down a little bit on the cloud seeding, as we said before, because, man, we are tired of it. And uh, right around the corner, it's going to start getting green and we're going to have to get to work out there and those yards and doing all of our spring type of work that we're doing. But right now, we are in a winter pattern, and we'll just see what happens. Maybe sometime in April, May, we'll finally have some warm weather. Taking a look at Wyoming sport today, the Wyoming Cowgirls finished up their season in the National Invitational Tournament. They got into the second round, and they ended up dropping their second round game to Kansas State. And anyway, they finished a successful season. They need to replace a couple of seniors, and I have not heard anything about any transfers leaving the program. But so they are already starting to recruit. I heard about a player from Denmark, and so they're looking to go ahead and replace two important seniors that have been around that program for quite some time. So the Cowgirls will 
start working towards next year. Now, the men's team is a totally different story. They are down to three players. They're going to end up having to go to the transfer portal, try to fill these gaps where they've just lost the players is where they're going to have to go find these players. And if you look at this trend in college basketball and what's going on, it's going on with football the same way and all the sports are affected. But you get these players and more or less you're getting a player for a year and then if they don't like the situation they're in, they're going to transfer out and go look for a better situation. And so I think the days of where you see a freshman come in, get a kid recruited, they stay through four to five years, depending if they redshirt, and then they graduate. I don't think you're going to see much of that anymore. That's a rarity in most sports with the ability to transfer. And it's too bad because it's, it doesn't give the fans and to get really to know these players. You know, from the past, I can remember growing up and, and through early years, of uh, these uh, players, watching these players as they come in as a freshman and how they develop and they drive a real tie to the, to the team and to the community and to the state. But those definitely are not going to happen. And of course, as I said before, this is happening through all of college sports. We talk about in the Mountain West Conference that the Wyoming Cowboys are in, that they have every other team is facing the same issue. Just part of the landscape and another just quick note on the Mountain West Conference March Madness people, San Diego State, who is a member of the Mountain West Conference. They are now in the Final Four, which is pretty cool for those players on that team to get that far. That's kind of the pinnacle. Now it's a chance. And with the four teams that are there, you know, San Diego State could be national champion. No number one seeds are left. Just an unbelievable tournament with what's been going on. But, of course, it's all about the money. That'll be a lot of money for the conference those teams, as they go through the tournament, the more money they make and the more money they bring back and share with the other teams in the conference. So Wyoming will benefit and everyone else will benefit from them. So days of sports, as we knew at one time, are slowly but surely fading out like a lot of things in life right now. But the Cowgirls and Cowboys have concluded their season. The spring practice will be getting started here shortly. I see their spring games at the end of April as all the college football teams do. They have their spring practices. They're allowed a certain amount of practices during the spring to work on development of the game. And so the Cowboys will have theirs at the end of April in Laramie. So we'll hope for some good weather, maybe get a few fans. But again, it's going to be interesting for the Cowboys as they have a lot of new players also. And it was amazing this year they did sign a lot of preferred walk-ons. So there's going to be a lot of fresh faces, a lot of hungry fresh faces that want to get that scholarship. So we'll definitely keep our eye on here in the state of Wyoming on our Wyoming Cowboys and our Wyoming Cowgirls. Since we're in the month of March and getting into April, we're starting to run into our summer tourism here in the state of Wyoming. And as we always like to do on the podcast, we'd like to look back through T.A. Larson, the history of Wyoming. And reading from T.A. Larson, talking about tourism, In the 1920s, almost every town urged on by national promotions set up a municipal campground of some kind as autos multiplied. Wyoming, for example, had 24,000 autos in 1920 and 62,000 in 1930. Cheyenne's first free campground was in 1922 and it offered police protection, electric light, hot and cold water, a community house, toilet facilities, shower, baths, wood, scavenger service, laundry tubs, a bathing beach, boating facilities, and a community store. The following year, an area 
with the best facilities available was set aside for tourists able and willing to pay 50 cents a night. This gave rise in Cheyenne and other communities to complaints that to charge money was contrary to the spirit of the Old West. Hitchhikers soon lined the highways. Came also the automobile graveyards. Almost day by day, the accumulation of unsightly hulks upon the city's edges grew visibly, and its offensiveness became the greater, said Cheyenne editor John Charles Thompson in 1926. A year later, he complained about the obnoxious advertisements dabbed on the ledges and boulders along the Lincoln Highway. Cottage camps sprang up to cater to tourists who did not want to carry their own tent and other camping equipment. Communities permitted facilities at their free campgrounds to run down as they look with greater favor on persons able and willing to spend some time and money. Meanwhile, dude ranches multiplied, especially around Sheridan, Cody, Dubois, and Jackson. The Eaton brothers are commonly credited with starting the first real dude ranch at Wolf, Wyoming, west of Sheridan in 1904. By 1937, tourists had begun traveling with trailers, cottage trailers, they were called, and communities began providing trailer parks with special facilities. There were also much discussion of the value of tourism. On the basis of returns from a questionnaire, the State Highway Department estimated that tourists spent between 6 and $7 million in the state during the summer of 1926. Yellowstone National Park was recognized as the great tourist attraction, drawing 260,000 visitors in 1929 and more than 300,000 in 1935. Every community tried to come up with a gimmick that would hold tourists overnight. Each thought it had a special recreational opportunity and scenery, but the average tourist dashed to Yellowstone Park or hurried across the state on the Lincoln Highway, which was Highway 30, with scarcely a pause. Cheyenne's frontier days held many tourists for a few days, but other cities and towns could conjure up no comparable attractions. Their rodeos had to depend mainly on natives. Loud shirts and four-gallon hats for businessmen, said a Cheyenne newspaper headline in July of 1922, over a story about the Frontier Days Committee's effort to create an atmosphere for the visitors. Said a committee member, we want them to know that they are out west. Such pleas were made regularly on many towns thereafter. In 1939, George Hauser, head of the Wyoming Department of Commerce and Industry, tried to get all the natives to wear western garb urging them to give our guests what they expect. No doubt, the persistent promotion made big hats and bright shirts more common than they had ever been among the pioneers. Lack of revenue held down the expenditures for good roads. After the First World War, the state received from the federal government surplus road building equipment and materials valued at $1.5 million. After 1921, when the state's bonding capacity was exhausted, there was a constant struggle to obtain funds for the matching federal financial aid. Oil royalties after 1920 and a gasoline tax after 1923, a major source of matching funds. Despite revenue problems, mile after mile of highway was surfaced, first with gravel, later with oil. The State Highway Department in 1924 began to experiment with treating gravel roads with black oil, which was abundant and cheap. By 1929, the state had 87 miles of oil roads in Albany, Carbon, Goshen, and Natrona counties. Meanwhile, the Federal Bureau of Public Roads had oiled the main loop roads in Yellowstone National Park in 1927. 
By 1939, all main roads in the state had been oiled. In 1934, deaths in automobile accidents surpassed 100 for the first time. The auto age changed the life of Americans remarkably in the 1920s and 30s. In particular, it made them much more mobile. No longer were there quiet, remote communities in Wyoming where strangers were novelties. No longer were most Wyoming citizens confined to small areas. They spent their weekends in their flatland towns along the railroad as before, but many of them now dash off to distant mountains on summer weekends. The state's scenic attractions also made it possible for tourism to grow so that it could inject a little dynamism into an otherwise static economy. And just a outstanding facts from T.A. Larson and kind of where we are in 2023. We're facing the same thing as far as tourism, trying to get the people to come to the state. And again, it seems pretty obvious as it is now as it was back then, the Yellowstone National Park is number one as far as sites to go visit in the state. But as we've talked about in a lot of the previous podcasts, there are a lot of spots to go. And we'll go over those destinations as we did last year talk about some of the spots up here in the northwest part of Wyoming. And all around the state, there's always some place to go that has a lot of history and can have some entertainment for everybody from wherever you're from. Today, we're going to be looking at a story of the legend of Crazy Woman's Fork. And this was written in 1873 by Edmund B. Tuttle. The Absorca, or Crow Nation, has a reputation of being good friends to the Whites. And it's also said they have never warred with them. Iron Bull, a renowned chief of the Crows, related the following legend. In the journey through that most delightful region of Montana from Fort Phil Kearney, Wyoming, to Fort C.F. Smith in the Powder River Country, one of the most favored camping grounds is the one called Crazy Woman's Fork, the name of a pretty little stream of water that rises in the Bighorn Mountains and empties into the Little Bighorn River, about three miles from the mountains. This stream crosses the trail between the two military posts. This camp on the fork is noted for its danger from Indian attacks, as an abundant supply of game being found in the valley brings the Indians there to replenish their larder of wild meat. Notwithstanding the dangers attending a journey through this region, it has also been an attraction in the beautiful and diverse view of lovely scenery, which hastens the parties traveling that region to encamp for a a night at least, on the banks of a limpid stream that refreshes man and beast from an unfailing source in the mountains. The banks are skirted with cottonwood trees, and to the west, one sees the tall spurs of the rocky mountains rising, as it were, from your feet, their dizzy heights covered with snow. Yet at the same time, the haze that surrounds them gives them a halo of glory and weird-like appearance, that the imaginative might compare to the garments that mantle the spirits of the blessed in paradise. Iron Bull said that about 200 years ago, when the moon shone brighter, there were more stars. His nation was a great people, and they roamed all over the country from the Missouri River to the west of the Yellowstone River. And no dog of a Sioux dare show himself there. But the people had been wicked, and the great spirits had darkened the heavens and made the sun to shine with such heat that the streams were dried up and the snow disappeared from the highest peaks of the mountains. The buffalo, the elk, the mountain sheep, the deer, and the rabbit all disappeared and died away, bringing a great famine upon his tribe. The spirit of the air breathed death into the lodges, 
so that the warrior saw his wife and papooses die for want of food he could not find on all the plains or the mountainsides, so that the whole nation grieved and mourned in sorrow of heart. Still they kept up their war with the Sioux, and fought many a bloody battle with them. When they suffered most, and the game had entirely disappeared, the great medicine men called a council, and when the head men had assembled, he told them of a wonderful dream that he had had. When the great spirit bid him to gather the chiefs of the tribes at the fork of the stream where they lived, their ponies had all been eaten for food, so the proud Indians were compelled to make the journey on foot to the place of the meeting. But when they had arrived at the bluffs on the edge of the valley, they were surprised to see a bountiful supper spread on the banks of the stream, close by the forks, and a white woman close by, standing up and making signs to them to descend from the bluffs. Having never before seen a white woman, they were greatly astonished. So the medicine men descended to the valley. The white woman told him that the great spirit would talk to the council through her. She told him, that the wars of the tribes were displeasing to the great spirit, and they must make peace with the Sioux nation. When that was done, the great chief, the bear that grabs, must return to her. They sent out runners to the Sioux, and peace was declared between the tribes for the first time in a hundred years. She then told the great chief to follow the mountains in a westerly course until he came to the Bighorn River, and where the rock was perpendicular, he was to shoot three arrows, hitting the rock each time. The chief departed on a mission, and as he gained the bluff from the streams, he looked back at the white woman. Was his surprise when he saw her rising in the air and floating toward the mountains. He watched her until she disappeared over the highest peak towards the sky. The chief pursued his journey, and arriving at the place, told him by the white woman, he discharged his arrows. The first one struck in the rock. The second one flew over the mountain. The third was discharged, and a terrible noise followed. The heavens were aglow with lightning, and the thunder shook the mountains. The earth trembled, and the rocks were rent asunder. And out of the fissure, countless herds of buffalo came, filling the valleys and the hills. The hearts of the Indians were glad, and they ate and were merry and returned thanks to the great spirit and the good white woman. The great fissure in the rocks is the canyon of the Bighorn River. Ironboro avers that when Anything of note is about to befall the tribe. The image of the white woman can be seen hovering over the peak of the mountain at the crazy woman's fork. He says the crow have never killed any of the whites, and his people say and believe that they are treated by the government agents worse than the tribes who gave us all the trouble. In other words, because they were peaceable, we need not, as with others, buy them off with presents. And they say we have taken some of their lands and given them to the Sioux, who are fighting and destroying the whites as often as possible. An outstanding story from this account of 1873 by Edward B. Tuttle. And I'd like to thank Kathy Weiser from the Legends of America for this updated story of June of 2021. And just a note from the author, The Legend of the Crazy Woman's Fork was written by Edmund B. Tuttle in 1873. It was included in his book, Three Years on the Plains, Observation of the Indians, 1867-1870. to Tuttle was the post-chaplain at Fort D.A. Russell in Wyoming Territory. As such, he was an eyewitness to the involving relationship between the U.S. military and the American Indians, particularly the Sioux and the Cheyenne. In 1873, Tuttle wrote about the events he had observed, both historical 
and commonplace during this time at the fort. Thanks for joining us today, and we hope you enjoy our podcast. As for the Code of the West, we ride for the brand, and we ride for Wyoming.